Governor Malibu couldn't get through on the inside. He is in traffic. Exaggerator. Here comes Lonnie on the far outside, and Creator is coming too. It is Destin in front. Creator, Lonnie on the outside. Destin and Creator. These two come down to the line together. Too close to goal. In 2006, there was an auction for a thoroughbred horse named the Green Monkey. It ended up selling for $16 million. That horse grew up to compete in only three races, of which it won none of them. Several years earlier, a Kentucky Derby winner named Ferdinand in 1986 was put out to stud in Japan at great expense and ended up completely failing at the job. A typical successful thoroughbred can earn $50 million selling its services in parenting new thoroughbreds. Hey, it's Seth, and this is Akimbo. We'll be back in a second to talk about just how bad we are at predicting the future and its serious repercussions in all of our lives. But first, here's a message from our sponsor. Hey, it's Seth. And this is a podcast. It's a podcast produced by Alex De Palma. Alex is a bit of a podcast whisperer. Alex and I are inviting you to join us in the podcasting workshop. You can find out more at podcastclub.link. In it, you will learn not just the technology to make a podcast, because frankly, it's pretty easy, but you will learn to find your voice. You will find the others. And together, in this proven workshop, that's back again, you will discover that you can, in fact, build a podcast, not to make money, because you probably won't, but to make a difference, to be heard, to find the people who want to hear from you. Podcastclub.link. We'd love to have you join us. Thanks. So I've got a bunch of examples of proof that we are terrible at predicting the future, but eager to do so. And many of them have to do with money, even though money isn't the point. It just makes it really clear that something that people should understand, something that people are supposedly careful with, we keep doing wrong. And it has really bad side effects. It leads to us living lives in fear, embracing the status quo, making decisions about race and appearance and gender that make no sense whatsoever. So I've got six or seven to share. Here we go. The first one, which you have seen a thousand times before and have ignored over and over again, is that past performance is not related to future behavior. If each year you bought the mutual fund that did the best the year before, you'd be broke now. And yet lots of investors look for, well, what's its five-year return? What's its 10-year return? Even though There is no correlation whatsoever between how a mutual fund used to do and how it's going to do tomorrow. We frequently look for unrelated issues of past performance when we decide how somebody or something is going to behave in the future. Related to that is the idea that performance and behavior is inherited The entire business of thoroughbred racing, which is a multi-multi-billion dollar industry, is based on only three horses, 
Three horses a few hundred years ago are related to every single horse that races in thoroughbred racing. And they are carefully tracked, and the bloodlines are tracked, and it's all in some big book. And there was a big controversy because American horses weren't allowed in the British book for a long time, and it goes on and on. And yet, it's really clear. Nobody knows anything. It turns out that the training, the expectations, are far more important than who the parents were. The next one doesn't have to do with dollars, but it does have to do with behavior, which is that we frequently generalize over irrelevant commonalities. If on your bike a couple weeks ago you got cut off by a white SUV, someone driving really aggressively, it's only natural that when you see another white SUV on the road, you're going to be filled with fear. It's not the same driver, and there's no correlation between the color of a car and the way the car drives. But we notice it and we get triggered because we are pattern-matching creatures. Of course, it's not just humans. Almost every developed species does exactly this. The cat only sits on the stove once, even if it's a different stove, even if the stove is off, because there's a Pavlovian response to a signal and a reaction. Easy measurements are often used to make predictions. We prefer something that's easy to talk about and rank. So before Moneyball, for 100 years in baseball, batting average was everything. If you were a scout, you were looking at batting average. It didn't matter that Billy Bean was able to demonstrate that batting average was a false metric appearing precise. People still kept looking for it because it was easy to do. And so we say, this person has a lot of followers on Twitter. They must be X, Y, or Z. But there's no relationship between the number of followers you have on Twitter and anything except the number of followers you have on Twitter. How about this one? Short-term patterns are believed to indicate long-term behavior. We do this in the justice system or the punishment system over and over again but it might have even happened in your home. If a seven-year-old or a nine-year-old is wetting their bed, it's the parents that are freaking out because in the back of their head, they're feeling shame. They're worried that their 14-year-old or their 25-year-old will have the same problem. And there are rare medical conditions where that's true, but in general, no. But their fretting caused shame to spread. And a few years from now, when that kid overcomes the challenge, the shame is still gonna be sitting around. Looking for short-term patterns and using them to assume that something is going to be different or the same in the future in a different setting is a trap related to that. Behavior in one area being associated with that in another. If you've ever interviewed someone for a job, you've fallen into this trap. That just because someone is good at a job interview doesn't mean they're going to be a good actuary. It doesn't mean they're going to be a good accountant. It might not even mean that they're going to be a good receptionist. All it means is that they're good in job interviews. We know, for example, that in order to be a good con man, you have to come across as trustworthy. Coming across as trustworthy does not mean you are trustworthy. It simply means you're good at coming across as trustworthy. And all of these things roll up to the thing 
that we evolved to be, which is likers, lovers, maintainers of the status quo. Because the status quo represents evolutionarily less of a threat than change. A species that's optimized for a certain place in a certain location likes that place and likes that location. It makes it more likely that that species will have grandchildren, that the genes will be passed on. And so the species gets stressed when the world changes. In the great book, The Beak of a Finch, scientists went year after year after year to a small island in the Galapagos and measured how big the beaks were on the finches that live there and only there. It was an amazing experiment because the finches were isolated. And each year they could measure the rainfall. And it turns out when there's a lot of rainfall, the seeds that the birds eat are in a different place and a different way of getting at them than in years where there isn't a lot of rainfall. And so the beaks that match the weather lead to healthy birds. And the beaks that are too short or not strong enough don't. What does this mean? It means that if you are carrying around a genome that needs it to be dry and it's raining a lot, you're in big trouble. Now, I don't think finches spend much time worrying about the weather, but human beings, we spend a lot of time worrying, worrying about the status quo, trying to keep things the way they are. If we took someone from the current day and put them back in 1400 or the year 800, my guess is they would wish for so many of the conveniences and privileges that modern people have today. But the people in those days, they weren't eager for societal or technological change. Even in the worst days of the Soviet Union, there were a lot of people in the Soviet Union who wanted things to stay the way they are. Because we're organized to want things to be as they are. And so, here we are, surrounded by a world in flux. And we are so confused, so confused about predicting future performance based on past performance, so confused about the power of heredity, about who the parents and the grandparents were of that person that we are encountering, so afraid of the other, the one that we don't know yet, aided by the media, which makes a living keeping us scared, which makes a living teaching us what things are like around here. We make bad decisions all the time. We see someone who reminds us of royalty and the status quo. Oh, George Clooney, he's Hollywood royalty. We hear about lineage. We look at the background of the people who we're hoping to lead us or the people who are simply walking past us on the street. And we are making bad predictions, bad predictions about who to hire, bad predictions about who to trust, bad predictions about where to put our investments or who to feel comfortable around or not. And so there's lots of bad decisions getting made. Zig Ziglar used to say, if you get lost in some neighborhood before GPS and there's a bunch of kids playing on the corner, who are you going to ask for directions? Well, the answer is usually the tall kid. The tall kid might be as dumb as a post. All you know is that you're trying to predict the future and you're using a not very good clue to figure out who's going to be the smart person, the engaged person, the person who's going to help you get to the next level. So we vote for presidents who are a little bit taller because somewhere along the way, 
we got brainwashed into thinking that was an effective way to predict the future. And so we judge somebody by the color of their skin. Because like batting average, it's right there, it's easy to measure, it's in front of us. And we've been reminded for a really long time that it's a metric we should look for. And so we punish people their whole lives because the punishment system interacted with them when they were 20 years old, even though that's a false signal appearing real. Over and over again, we make decisions about kids, kids as young as one or two or three years old, based on who their parents are, what their socioeconomic status is, and we decide to indoctrinate them one way or the other based on that, not based on the potential that's around us. The extraordinary thing about the world we live in, that it is based not on inherent genetic talent, if there even is such a thing, it is based on attitude. And attitude is based on indoctrination and environment. And that's often manipulated by the confusions that we've just talked about. It's manipulated by class. It's manipulated by race. And so what we end up doing is persuading some people that they should have a voice and that they should be in charge and that they should go to the next level. And we persuade way too many people to lower their expectations and to be told that they don't belong or they're never going to amount to anything. But what we need is an attitude that enables enrollment, which leads to flexibility and to learning. Because if we are curious and enrolled in the journey, we can learn more than ever before. If we are open and realize just how bad we are at predicting the future, we can stop looking at the false clues and cues and instead focus on the ones that truly matter. We have hardwired all of this into our system, the educational systems, the financial systems, the healthcare systems, all predicting the future poorly, all locking people out from the idea of contribution and possibility. It turns out that the stuff in the built world around us the generous stuff, the technological stuff, the things that made things better, they were all made by human beings. Human beings who saw something, human beings who believed they could contribute. And those contributions are not based on where they were born or who their parents were. They are based on possibility and curiosity and attitude. And so our opportunity is to start seeing the future more clearly, that when one of the false metrics shows up, when one of the traps arrives, we need to take a deep breath and say, no, we're not going to fall for that again because people are not thoroughbreds. And even people who track the thoroughbreds have trouble predicting the future. No, people are people. And if we can teach somebody something, if we can help them learn and help them believe that it is possible to connect and to make things better, it's likely that that's going to happen. Thanks for listening. We'll see you next time. We'll be back in a second to answer your questions from last time. But first, here's a message from our sponsor. If you want to learn to ride a bicycle, don't watch a video, don't read a book. Hey, it's Seth, and I'm here to talk about the Akimbo Workshops. These are interactive, real-time, online workshops that work. And we're devoting 2020 to finding one that matches where you need to go. If you're ready to level up, I hope you'll check out akimbo.com to find out about our proven, effective workshops. 
Thanks for listening. As you know, I love getting questions from you. If you've got a question, please visit akimbo.link, that's A-K-I-M-B-O dot L-I-N-K, and click the appropriate button. This week, instead of the usual Q&A, I'm really thrilled to include a conversation I had live last week with Taylor Harrington and Dr. Natalie Nixon. She's written a really important new book about creativity. Here we go. And we're live. And we're live. Hey, it's Seth, and I'm here with with the extraordinary Natalie Nixon. And I want to start us off. Hi, Natalie. How are you? Good. How's it going, Seth? Great, thanks. This is such a weird medium. It takes a little while for me to get used to the fact that I'm not in a room by myself. We're going to talk about creativity, possibility, the practice, and our ability to do this work on purpose. Before we do, and before I uh, give Natalie the proper introduction she deserves, Here's my scary story. Uh, I have a book coming out in November about creativity. And so I get this email a few months ago saying, here's this new book coming out about creativity. Do you want to look at it? And it's like the worst thing in the whole world. Don't send me a new book about creativity because I don't want to. So I said, I'm really, really busy. I can't read it, which was true. And then the minute I finished my book, I read Natalie's book. And I am super relieved that A, her book is even better than mine, and B, there's almost no overlap between the two. So Natalie's book turned on a light for me. It is filled with profundity from beginning to end. It's not a long book if you're one of those people who need books to be not long. And um, I think it will stick with you for a long time. So I reached out to Natalie and I said, I didn't steal your book. I couldn't blurb your book, but I would love to have you join Taylor and I to talk about your book because it's available now and we need more creativity in our world. So with that said, hi, Natalie, how are you? Hi, Seth. Hi, Taylor. Seth, thank you so much for inviting me and, and sharing your platform. This is, this is awesome to see you, even through this medium. <laughs> so when did the itch start for you to say creativity is a skill and I might be able to help people? Uh, it started as I, um, you know, I built up my company figure eight thinking first as a side hustle when I was still a professor and I would do these consulting projects with companies that were trying to build innovation cultures, start an innovation lab. And I had this creeping sensation that we were going about it the wrong way. I felt like we were kind of talking over and around each other, throwing out the word innovation and needed a sort of lingua franca. And, um, but then I realized, in my opinion, we had to pause and take a step back and actually start with creativity because I, I believe creativity is the engine for innovation. Yeah, yeah. And I think your writing style is terrific. And you reminded me of some stories I'd heard before, like um, the visa origin story, which I would love to have you touch on for a minute, um, but also a whole bunch of new ones. And I think that human beings have voluntarily brainwash themselves into thinking they're not creative. Absolutely. And you're just completely pulling the blanket off of that one and saying, that's not the way it works. It's a skill. That's right. It's a competency. And it's actually going to become more essential 
in what we're calling the future of work, which is here. We are, hello, in the fourth industrial revolution. And, uh, you know, a robust, renowned organization like the World Economic Forum has projected back in 2016 that creativity would be among the top three job skills to have in the world. So yeah, it, to be human is to be hardwired to be creative. And so this book is, is an attempt to also kind of democratize how we're thinking about creativity because I was also tired of us ghettoizing creativity in the arts. Um, I, I decided to define not just decided, I, I, was, I did quite a bit of research and I'm a qualitative researcher, so a lot of conversations with a range of people. And, and I, I think about creativity as our capacity and ability to toggle between wonder and rigor to solve problems. Right. And that dichotomy, I think, was the magic thing in the book for me. I had never Thanks. thought about it so simply. And it's super profound because lots of us know people who are filled with wonder and have no rigor and the opposite. And I don't think anyone's born filled with both or neither. And again, it's a muscle and we can learn how to use it. Absolutely. It's a muscle. And um, it's about, you know, I was listening to uh, one of your episodes of your podcast and you're talking about organized learning, right? And it's, uh, it's something that we have forsaken in the way that we approach our culture, cultures of learning. Yeah. Let me bring Taylor back on because I know that she's got a whole bunch of questions she wants to yeah. do. And it's the interactivity here that makes it super fun. Taylor, what you got? Yeah. So we're going to pop off of what you guys were just saying with wonder. So obviously that's a huge part of the creativity leap. Um, and then also you talked a lot about Natalie, this idea of traditional education and how that tends to kind of lose that sense of creativity and wonder that um, those curious kids have. So this question is from Rosie. So Rosie said, how can I find creativity again now as a mom of four kids with a pretty mundane job? I used to be so creative when I was younger can you both talk a little bit about how she can rediscover wonder and also creativity in her life? So the, so yeah. So thank you for that question, Rosie. Um, it's really uh, inch by inch. It's, it's, it's small iterative steps. So I do something which um, I used to be embarrassed to say out loud, but you know, now that I, I think I wrote about this in the book, um, I take daydream breaks. Um, yeah. I did write about this in the book. I recall how as a, as a, as a first grader, I, I've always been a mighty daydreamer. And um, daydreaming, we actually know now from neuroscience of creativity that it really helps our neurosynapses to rewire in a different way so we can do that deep marinating work that leads to those aha moments and insight. So I actually create timed daydream breaks during the day. If it's cold outside, I'll just stand by a window in a beautiful warm June day. I was, I'm from Philly, so we have a, a front step stoop culture. So I'll sit outside on the steps and I'll look at the clouds and that does, no pun intended, wonders. I also, I know being a mom of four kids, it's like, where do you carve out the time? But if you can figure out a way to be a clumsy student of something, um, that's another awesome way to start to develop creativity. Um, if it's an if it's one hour a week, what happens when we are clumsy students again, it inspires what I call the three eyes around creativity, which are the way we actually exercise creativity. So it inspires inquiry and curiosity um, because you have to ask so many questions to figure out what am I doing wrong? How do I figure this out? You, it, it also triggers much more improvisation and improvisation isn't about being a great uh, 
comedic sketch artist on Saturday Night Live or you know the likes of Miles Davis, but it's it's about being adaptive, being in the moment, and then also it triggers intuition. And I, I'm now a clumsy student of the foxtrot and the tango, so that's how I uh, try to exercise it. So I'm going to just chime in with a couple other things. First of all, we have uh, been tricked into thinking that doing something decorative is creative. It might be, but it probably isn't. And filling in the blanks and painting by number, if that gives you pleasure, please, it's a great hobby. But what we're talking about here is something that might not work. And what Natalie's pointing out, which is the key core insight is, the smallest viable breakthrough is what you need to focus on. Don't think that you can reorganize the company where you work. They're not going to let you do it. But if you can figure out how to rearrange where things are on the receptionist desk so that things flow seven minutes faster per day, no one's going to stop you. And if you're wrong, you can just go backwards, right? right? Those little tiny things, that's just as creative. It just doesn't have the same scale. Absolutely. And it builds a momentum and a, and a confidence in ourselves for what I call that creative competency. I love that example. Yeah. Taylor. We have dozen, dozens of people saying how much uh, they love the phrase clumsy student of something. So cool. very cool. <laughs> um, all right, cool. This is a question from Derek that I think is going to apply to a lot of the people who are listening right now, given the state of the world. Derek said, how could I make my Zoom brainstorm sessions with my re- remote team more creative? I feel like in the office, there's such a different energy than online. Hmm. Well, I've been on Zoom quite a bit like everybody else. And, um, you know, Seth and I, because I, I as I was listening to that, that episode, Seth, you talked, you, you ended it with this example about um, the almighty breakout rooms, which is, a, it's, you know, like any tool, it's like a knife can cut butter or it can hurt somebody. So the breakout rooms are a wonderful feature. It's just, it's a trust issue that people will actually go and do what the prompts is I, I, I like to integrate a lot of prompts. I don't like to be the talking head. I like to make sure that people are having conversations. There's a whiteboard feature on Zoom, which I'm still rather clumsy with, but when you, if you are the host and you um, go to, to, to share a screen, there's an option for a whiteboard room. Any opportunity also to help people doodle. I often start with a priming exercise of just getting people to realize they can in fact visualize abstract information through stick figures and triangles and arrows and stuff. Um, And then asking people to visually through a doodle respond to an idea or question and and, and showing it on the screen and and, and asking questions in that way. So that's, those are a few ideas. Brainstorming in a corporate meeting setting uh, is a little bit like comparing craft singles to cheese. You you can call it brainstorming if you want, but it's not brainstorming. Brainstorming is a very specific process, and most people have no clue how to do it. And the magic of Zoom run well is you can make it so it's better than that in-person thing you've been calling brainstorming. But in order to do that, you're going to have to, as a manager slash leader, embrace the idea of shifting status roles of giving people a voice, of coming up with moments of tension and release. And all of these things, can I mean, I've been living in Zoom for five years. Um, and so if you're willing to, to turn things upside down, you will be amazed at what you can do. And I have seen 
thousands of people go through an exercise of coming up with hundreds and hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of ideas in a very short period of time. But that's not going to happen if you can't build trust first. Can I, can I build on your point about tension, Seth? Um, another tension that I've used in Zoom for, for ideating brainstorming is the role of silence. So <clears throat> I like to do something called quiet storming. And it's, it's timed, right? It might be just 90 seconds. But this moment or moments scattered throughout where there's kind of people can, you're part of this virtual interaction, but you're kind of going into yourself and thinking quietly to yourself. And it's this old pedagogical trick of, of think, pair, share. You know, that that's also a really cool way to, to break things up and, and, and leverage that tension you're talking about. Yeah, it's brilliant. I mean, and just for viewers at home, if you think 90 seconds is in a long time, the three of us are going to be silent for four seconds. Ready? Okay. Like my brain is going to explode. Four <laughs> yes. Seconds. Yes. Challenging. Yeah. Yeah. I remember when I was going through the alt MBA, we talked about silence a lot and this idea of who owns silence. So if I'm the last one to speak, do I then own it? Or am I talking to one other person and that person now owns that silence? Or is it just no one owns it because it just exists? So I think that's a really fun thing to play with, especially with brainstorming, because now you're suddenly all together. So at the end of 90 seconds, who's going to raise their hand and say, oh, I'll speak first. Right. Right. I love that. Yeah. All right. This is, we have so many questions pulling in, pouring in. Um, this is from Adil. So I'm going to go ahead and put it up here. Does creative have to be an untested new idea or could it be a simply a different way of executing an existing product or service? I think the latter. I mean, oh, I'll for go sure. to, yeah, I go to my, <clears throat> my teacher for all this, which is jazz, right? So much of jazz, it's about, it's, it's, it's incremental shifts that can make these exponentially different uh, results and products. So it's it's product musically, obviously, but then but yeah, it's 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 yeah. Um, what's really new, right? It's all about the remix, which actually the hard work then is being super observant about what is, so that you can figure out what are you going to tweak slightly. And there's all sorts of cool frameworks to use to figure out how, how to tweak in order to, to make these more exponential shifts. Yeah, you nailed it. What else you got, Taylor? <laughs> all right, so this one's from Charles, and I think this feeds in really well with Natalie's book. Um, so it says, when we are serving uh, people, the people we, wait, when we are already serving the people we sought to serve, would they uh, not want us to be creative? How can we delight them without disappointing them? So I think this goes back to innovation, this idea of, okay, if if we've already got something that's working, do we continue to innovate, even though that may be a risk of this might not work or they might not like this? Yeah. Charles has been in some of our workshops and I'm recognizing some of our language. Oh, cool. Great. Here's the, <laughs> here's the deal. Um, you do not want uh, creative engineers at the Ford Motor Company coming up with a brand new power plant and putting it in your Ford Mustang in the middle of the night for when you go to drive tomorrow. That the engineering world is based on making promises and keeping them. And it's very important if we're going to build anything that matters that we make promises and keep them. But it is also true that when you go out and buy a new record album from someone you're a fan of, you do not want it to be the same record album you bought the last time they came out with a record. You already have that one. So it's a different bucket. And the bucket is, this is the bucket of 
better, amazing, new, whatever word you want. This is the bucket of, we just made a promise and it's going to be here again tomorrow. Hmm. I mean, I think, it, it, yeah, it just even goes into the fact of, Seth, your first book you wrote probably doesn't apply to the same people that, you know, your 18th book appeals to. Um, Natalie, is there anything else you want to add there? Because I have another question. Yeah, lined just up. that um, in any creative process, which is the engine for innovation, and innovation, in my view, is invention converted into value. That could be financial, social, cultural value. But at some point, it has to end. You have to stop. And um, that's, just the, that's just the rigor aspect of it. Otherwise, you diverge, 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 diverge. At a certain point, you have to converge and figure out how is the, how the people we want to touch responding to it and, and trust that, okay, this is good for now and, and move on. Yeah. Love it. All right, we'll take a couple more questions. This one's from Roland. How to keep creati creativity juice flowing even on a bad day? <laughs> I got one. You want to go first? You go first, Seth. Okay, so this is um, this is in my book, which is some people say they have to be in flow and inspired to be creative. And other people say, uh, I have to show up and do work to be inspired and be in flow, one way or the other, right? My friend Isaac Asimov wrote 400 books. He was never inspired. He just knew it was 6.30 in the morning and he needed to type. And yes. once he started typing, that made him inspired. So I think the way, the reason you're having a bad day is because you're not doing the work, not the other way around. Amen. I love that you basically just mapped out the two corollaries I, I, I frame around wonder and rigor. The first corollary is that wonder is found in the midst of rigor. So whatever your rigorous thing is, it's for me, it's filing taxes or creating some ginormous Excel sheet or weeding, right? Wonder is found, there's like this aha, wondrous moment that happens in the middle of the tedium. The second corollary is that um, rigor can't be sustained without wonder. So sometimes in, in some organizations, there's in, in, this, in these efforts to build cultures of innovation, uh, there's, there's a lot of this churn going from meeting to meeting and procedure and the rule book in, in the efforts to build innovation, but that's not sustainable. We must design space and time for the wonder, which is all audacity, pausing, all, all that good stuff. Beautiful. Absolutely. All right. We'll take two more questions and one of them's going to be from me. Because <laughs> um, I really like, I really wanted to ask this. Um, so both of you have talked about this and Seth, it's in your upcoming book too, about improvising and improv. So, you know, you both kind of talk about how that can be helpful for cre creativity is to kind of get outside and be in a space where you're no longer have those rules or instructions of what to do next. So um, can you talk about that a little bit and why that's needed and important uh, in work? This is all you, Natalie. You go for it. So au contraire, we actually do need some rules in improvisation. We do because the beautiful, you know, my, my one of my rigor mentors I don't never met her, but she's still my rigor mentor. Is Twyla Tharp, the, the amazing uh, American modern dancer and choreographer, Twyla Tharp? And she famously said, uh, "You have to start with a box to think out of a box, right?" And improvisation. Um, all incredible jazz musicians know music theory. They practice incessantly. Even the composition has a minimal structure. It might be a beginning, a middle, and an end. So um, improv is not 
pulling something randomly out of your armpit is not doing whatever you feel like, right? Like you have, there are, there have to be some minimal structures and boundaries. So you know what to move against and push against, um, whether that's in dance, comedy, figuring out a new, a different marketing strategy, figuring out um, a new financial model. Um, we need some minimal structure to, so we can push against rebound and we, and, and for, for the, for the counterpoint. Yeah. Love that. All right. So hard picking questions. There are so many. Um, okay. We'll go ahead and do this one. Last question from Gustavo, I think. Is that how you say it? Gustavo? I think so. um, okay, cool. Um, what would be examples of doing the hard part first, emotional labor and dancing with fear, which are all very akimbo Seth terms that we use, um, that create the conditions for creativity to grow? So these all kind of talk about that doing that hard thing. And then how does that create creativity? Yeah, I think creativity is not a fragile flower. Mm, creativity is a well-developed muscle. And this, this myth that the world has to be all calm and right, and I need to feel <laughs> just okay, then I'll be creative, that means you haven't done the prep. And it means you don't understand the concept. And uh, if you're on a team with four people, buy five copies of Natalie's book and have everyone read it. And then just practice the muscle. Come up with really creative solutions to irrelevant problems so that you've stripped away the, the scary part. Okay, now, the three things you said, do the hard part first, emotional labor, dancing with fear, bring them back on because the muscle doesn't change, right? You can't say I'm a marathon runner, but I only run downhill. It doesn't work that way. <laughs> Yeah. I love that. Yeah. No fragile flowers in, in creativity. And I, I would also just kind of bring that question. Thanks for that question, Gustavo and Seth's answer <clears throat> to this current moment. Um, you know, days of uncertainty and chaos are designed for creativity. And this moment that we're going in, whether we're talking about this global health pandemic of COVID or the social injustice protests or social justice protests in the United States of America, uh, we have been afraid of doing this hard emotional labor, which for me would just start with conversations, right? That's where it would start to really start to generate some creative um, direction into how we can really come together in spite of our disparate parts in, in our country. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Brilliant. All right. Well, on that note, Natalie, do you mind just sharing for anyone who is listening? How do they know if this book is something for them, if they should be reading it? Who's it for? <laughs> if, if you if you feel stuck, read this book. If you um, know that you it, it, it's almost like an itch you got to scratch, that you really um, want to amplify the creativity in your life and your work. This book, I hope, and I've been told so far, it's inspiring. It's also, I, I also include some practical tips. Um, there's a discussion guide that I've developed. Please contact me at natalie at figureeightthinking.com if you want um, to receive a copy of that. Sign up for my newsletter. And all of this information is on figureeightthinking.com. Um, and most, most of all, I'd love, your, I'd love your feedback. I'd love to continue this type of conversation. Oh, yeah. Also, I went as far as creating a card game called The Wonder Rigger Discovery. We I'll love card games. Yes. Yes. Awesome. Check it out. Where's my deck of cards? Here it is. <laughs> <laughs> At all times. They're like just yes. playing. 
But yes, yours has words on them. Mine just have pictures. Mine have pictures <laughs> and, and lots of good questions. Fantastic. Awesome. Thanks and everyone love, for tuning in. Yes, Yeah, I, I would just add that I love how in your book, it's not only getting your perspective, but you interview so many different people. It's so cool to hear from so many people in such a, you know, a condensed short book as well, where you're able to really get that perspective. So thank you for bringing it into the world. Um, and I'm excited for other people to read it. Thank you, Taylor. Thank you, Steph, so much for sharing your so platform. Fun. This was an amazing chat. Thank you. Appreciate it. You guys are great. Go make All a record, right. everybody. Be well. Go make a record, guys. Here's our bumper. I just don't think it's possible or probable in, in today's world to distinguish yourself as an educational institution or as a success seeker at the level of, of information gathering or information distribution. I mean, this is the information age and you can get a great book, a great essay, a great idea anywhere, you know, and none of us can do that better than the internet, right? Um, there is no great thought leader who can outthink the internet. Like we have data. What all MBA gets right is it puts you in a context where you're part of a community that says, yeah, 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 that's good. You got access to ideas, you got access to information, that's awesome, but when are you gonna show up? When are you gonna face that blank page? When are you gonna face the possibilities within you? When are you gonna face those fears? I'm not gonna let you hide. You gotta show up. And that's the hardest part. And it sounds simple, it sounds very commonsensical, but it's the number one reason why we don't write that book. It's the number one reason why we don't ask that question. It's not because we don't know or we don't have the information. We don't have an environment and we don't have a support network that makes it feel like showing up is possible for me. Not just possible for the success stories I see out there, but I can show up. Consider the Alt-MBA. More than 3,000 alumni in 74 countries around the world. Find out more at altmba.com.